Blog Talk Radio. that there was a cluster of pneumonia, which we know today is the COVID-19. 
So going up into 2020, I had all these plans to speak at conferences. You know, I was even kind of tapering my conference schedule for medical cannabis a little bit. So I was already in the midst of connecting with FAMU for public service, uh, public service announcements and just to educate Florida on medical cannabis and what it can do for the patients here in Florida. Now, as the epidemic was, you know, picking up speed and we had all these massive shutdowns and in, in these um, changes in businesses, changes in the way we live our daily lives due to the pandemic, FAMU and I, we kind of changed our trajectory to focus on, okay, this virus, how does it impact medical cannabis patients? So last week, um, we recorded a, uh, a very nice um, segment on how COVID-19 impacts medical marijuana patients. We will have a continua continuation of that, which will be recorded next week. It'll air in the next one to two weeks. So that's how I connected with FAMU, because COVID-19 impacts pretty much every industry and almost every, if not every, medical patient. So when uh, this thing is set on the air two weeks uh, from today from uh, FAMU, and I've seen yes. some, some clever here. Um, you have, like, these uh, – are cannabis patients more susceptible to um, this this virus? You know, uh, you see a lot of these questions. People say, well, things like, you know, I um, I use the vape or I smoke the vape. Are they – and more of a danger with the difference of these different antibiotics that they're using if they get um, corona? Yeah. So, you know, before we even get into that, let's just define what COVID-19 is. So speaking on that, I'd like to give a shout-out to Julian and Gabriel. We've been kind of studying and putting some educational protocols out on COVID-19. So COVID-19 stands for coronavirus disease. 2019. And mm -hmm. the way it can affect the body is some patients could be asymptomatic. Other patients might develop a mild, mild condition very similar to the flu, such as fever, cough, fatigue, uh, sputum, that means that they're just coughing up phlegm, or muscle pains all over their body. For some patients, mm -hmm. it's even deadly. And so the patients that are most susceptible to a high rate of morbidity and mortality, meaning a high rate of sickness and death, are patients 60 and older, diabetics, patients with underlying health conditions. And this is one of the reasons why you see an increase in mortality rates for patients that are living in, in different elderly communities. Say, so how does this virus impact medical marijuana patients? So number one, if someone let's say even on the recreational side is sharing a blunt or sharing a vape pen, they can pass that to another person or they can catch it from another person. So okay, right yeah, there, I'm that's a huge yeah. impact. Yeah, guys, you heard that. Don't share. Okay. <laughs> not only is it not allowed, but now there's additional reason that you could catch this deadly disease from somebody giving you a blunt that they have smoked or giving you a vape pen. And the other thing that, when we talk about certain diseases, specifically infectious diseases, we say that they don't discriminate. And that means that they can affect any race. Um, they can affect, affect poor people, rich people. There's really no limitations on who could be affected if they're around somebody that it, that's affected. 
the way the virus goes from one person to another is through respiratory droplets. There's a second route that's probably uh, lower, a little bit lower um, transmission is through an object. So let's say somebody passed you a cell phone and they, had, they were affected with the virus and they passed it to you. That's another way. That's called a fomite. Overall, look at different businesses in the private sector. They've gotten a lot more vigilant about cleaning you know, doorknobs, cleaning chairs, cleaning different surfaces. So that's how we can impact the disease and delay the progression by taking these small steps you know, just to protect our patients, protect our clients. Wow. Okay. So it's it, it, it's it's a lot of um, theories out there, and a lot of people don't have access to doctors right now. And, and everybody, a lot of people are doing telehealth, kind of like what you're doing as well. And um, there's a level of fear. So to the audience that are listening, I mean, how fearful should they be? Is it is this something that is just really really bad, or is this something that we can see being controlled in the near future. You hear a lot of people say, hey, millions of people die from the flu each year, or thousands of people die from the flu each year. Coronavirus is not that big. I mean, should we take that advice? Are they accurate, or is this thing really as deadly as the media is making it out to, to be? Well, I, well, I'm going to answer that question with a question. Mm-hmm. When have you seen the flu overwhelm worldwide health systems? When have you seen the flu become, you know, so prevalent and widespread to a point that the hospital system is basically overwhelmed? They cannot handle all the cases. Well, never. You, you'll probably you'll probably say never. Yeah. So that so that tells you right, right there how big this is impacting patients, and you know, not obeying or or not taking the CDC guidelines. Seriously, that is what's leading to, you know, these different countries being overwhelmed. For example, Italy, you know, we are not engaging in what's called the social distancing, you know, keeping six feet from others, you know, isolating yourself for periods of time, not engaged in the hand washing, the cleaning of surfaces, and in many cases, covering your cough with tissues, masks, or your elbow. Those minor things, those preventive things can really delay the progression of the disease. And so in this in a worst case scenario, the healthcare systems, the hospitals are overwhelmed. So imagine this. Imagine a hospital is going to get a hundred patients. They get that they get that over one week. Compare that to if they get a hundred patients over two months. You can handle it a lot better over a period of two months than you can over one right. week. Right. But I, I still, you know, a lot of people um, would say, well, I, I understand what you're saying, but now we live in a society where if someone, you know, if they sneeze, if they hack, if they cough, everyone is, like, afraid. For instance, even, i have to be honest with myself, if I developed a cough today and I cough, you know, for t- today and tomorrow, should I go get checked? Is it is it a chance that I have contracted it? I mean, how how concerned should I be? Because like you said, the the medical system is overwhelmed, and I know they're saying things like, "Hey, don't come unless you have these symptoms." But you do have these asymptomatic people, and then you have some people, like you said, that they, they do get mild 
symptoms. So should you go yeah. get tested if you have a very mild symptom, or is it yeah. – what's your advice on that? The first thing you should do is call your physician so they can stratify your risk. So, you know, if you've been exposed or traveled to an area that has a high rate of the virus, a high infectious, a high infectious rate of the virus, you may very likely have COVID-19. But keep in mind that there's other viruses as well. There's other coronaviruses, and then, then there's the flu itself. So from a statistical standpoint, you have to look at the risk. You have to look at the travel history. You have to look at where the patient was exposed, where they've traveled, and have they been taking precautions to help avoid transmission. Wow. So now I know that you, you've actually um... – have a few patients yourself that has you know contracted coronavirus. As a physician, how, how are you protecting yourself? We we see the news every day, and they're like nurses and doctors. You guys are are getting it um, at a very very high rate. Um, what are you? What are your steps that you're taking to protect your you, you and your staff? Yeah, well, well, we've been blessed and lucky that we've been doing telemedicine for about three or four years now in the office, and we've okay ramped up the availability. And the other great thing is that more insurances are covering it now because they see the importance of it. You know, this is really a worldwide healthcare emergency. So that's why all these steps are being put in place. For example, okay. now medical marijuana patients in Florida can do their follow-up via telemedicine. That, oh, wow. That's an emergency order that was put in place on March 16th. Also, patients can receive their pain medication, scheduled pain medication, that was the same emergency order put in place on March 16th. So these emergency measures are what's really helping physicians to help, you know, follow these guidelines, to help follow the social distancing and keep patients and keep individuals six feet apart so that we can still administer our health care, you know, to patients so they can still get their treatment for their diabetes, for their pain, for their high blood pressure, but at the same time follow these guidelines that have been set in place in these recommendations. Well, I'll tell you what, that is that is huge. You said March 16th? Yes. So as March 16th, you can get your, uh, your well, renewal. March, your since March 16th. So you can do that telehealth with marijuana yeah. license and for your Schedule two drugs. Or is it, yeah. can you schedule? Okay. So if, if it's over Schedule one, do you have to come in and see that physician? Well, there's no Schedule one. Schedule one is, is not... Um, a medication that's prescribed, that's really illegal substances. But Schedule Two is things like, you know, hydrocodone, you know, morphine. And so, you know, the higher the number, the less addictive potential. But Schedule One is not anything that's prescribed. That's, that has, and that's the ironic thing about marijuana is how it was classified as more addictive than cocaine. <laughs> that's one of the ridiculous things about, um, you know, the classification of it um, that, you know, it, it was Schedule One. Right now, Epidiolex is the first um, plant-based uh, medical marijuana uh, product that's out there on the market. It's for seizures. But there's also synthetic medications, which is synthetic THC. It's called Marinol. That's been on the market for a number of years now. And, and, and with that, what what what's your prediction on them changing the classification of of that drug from, I mean, which uh, we know that in the state of Florida in certain states that you can, but I mean, federally it's still Schedule One, right? 
Yeah, I think the approval of Epidiolex, which is a concentrated CBD tincture, I think that was a huge step in the right direction. There's other medications being studied and also medications that have been approved in other countries. For example, Sativex is a medication that consists of THC and CBD. But, you know, hopefully, you know, once this epidemic is over and we, you know, have everything behind us, including having a newly developed vaccine, then from a medical uh, and healthcare standpoint, we could focus more on the research of, of medical marijuana. But for right now, this definitely takes precedence, and this is an urgent matter that we focus on this right now. Okay. Well, I'm going to um, go to the phone lines and invite people at this point. Then I have a, I have a question for you. Hey, guys, if you want to uh, call in and speak to Dr. Newton yourself, if you have any questions concerning the coronavirus, concerning the interaction of coronavirus and cannabis, the number to call in is area code 516-387-1880. Again, the area code is 516-387-1880. You press the number one, it will put you in queue to talk, to ask Dr. Newton uh, one of those questions. Again, that is 516-387-1880 and press the number one. Um, back to you, Doc. Um, is there any, and I know this came out of nowhere, this strand came out very, very fast. Is there any studies or evidence that maybe CBD or maybe THC um, being effective for this virus at all? When it, And I'm sure a lot of people would love to hear yes, but is this the case? No, it's not likely to, you know, because of the pathophysiology of viruses and mm-hmm. the receptor and the mechanism of medical marijuana, it's unlikely to influence the development and progression of the virus. Okay. So what you have to do is interrupt the viral life cycle. You know, we talked about the preventative aspects of it. Now, so what's currently being studied? You know, one thing that's being looked at is, is Plaquenil, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine are currently under clinical trials. There's also something called monoclonal antibody. So, you know, antibody is basically a protein that attacks another protein. For example, the proteins on the surface of the virus can be attacked. Another thing that's being studied is highly active antiretroviral, highly active antiretroviral therapy. And so those along with things like high-dose vitamin C and zinc are currently among the recommendations. Keep in mind, these are off-label recommendations because this virus is so new. We don't know exactly everything that's going to help. And so everything has a risk-benefit and option. So that's one thing that you have to look at individually and that your physician has to discuss with you. Okay. We have a question in, and uh, it's asking you, Doc, um, lupus patients, if you're still working, um, should you stay home? Um, if you have a blinding condition like lupus or something like that, should you not be out active with, you know, the general population? So, you know, lupus is a disease of the immune system. It's where your immune system is basically attacking, for example, the joints, the skin, the blood cells, or different organs. And so with it being an underlying problem with the immune system, a lupus patient is going to be 
at very high risk for severe complications because they've already proven that the immune system is dysfunctional. I would suggest to, as much as possible, take the preventative measures. You know, unless it's an emergency, you know, use social distancing. You know, take that period of time off work. You know, and, and hopefully the different businesses out there are taking advantage of some of these bridge loans that's there in Florida, taking advantage of some of the um, SBA loans that's out there now, the um, Paycheck Protection Program that's recently been launched so that they can continue to, you know, help people survive out there at the same time while they're engaging in the social isolation. Okay, so we're going to go to the phone line and take a few calls. Um, go ahead, caller. You are on the air. Hello. Hello. Yeah, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Good evening. Yeah, I. Good evening. I would like. To, yes, sir. I would like to ask Doc. Recently, there's a publication that a vaccine that was used for tuberculosis years ago. They are saying that um, some study has been done that proves that they, it, they have some immunity in it to towards these diseases. And the ratio they are using is like um, countries like America and Italy and Australia, how they responded. And when you compare to Spain, um, country like Japan, Korea, and like some Caribbean countries and Latin American countries that have that vaccine, but America them don't have the vaccine, and they say. Yeah, other people that have the vaccine, their numbers are very low compared to the people that don't have the vaccine. Yeah, you know if there's any truth in that. So that, that, you know, one of the one of the difficult things about viral life cycles and vaccines is is they often take time to see what are the long term effects. So there is a, a a study, the one that you're mentioning, um what, I think it showed a hundredfold. It was a 50 to 100-fold decrease in incidence. And so one other thing to keep in mind is that we're also engaged in other studies right now, including enrolling patients that's in the convalescent stage, serum donors, to give those to the critically ill patients and basically supplement their immunity. So... The difference between convalescent serum and convalescent plasma, so serum is basically a plasma without the fibrinogen. And one reason why you might have a preference toward that is because many COVID patients have shown to be prone to blood clot formation. So you start to see some heart disease, DIC, as they get severely ill. So the quick answer to your question is, yes, that has shown some promise. But at the same time, we have other arms of studies that's being looked at as well. So, you know, hopefully over the next few weeks, we'll get even more information about, you know, the decline. But, you know, look at that study population. Are, the, are they also studying people that have been engaging in social distancing as well? You know, what is the cohort? Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing that we have to look at is would that decline have happened anyway because of the preventative measures that's being put in place? Okay, thank you. 
You're welcome. Thank you very much for your for your call. We're gonna go uh, right to the next call. We got a lot of calls. I'm trying to squeeze them in. We got about 30 minutes left. Um, go ahead, caller. You're on the air. Hello. You're on the air. You are live with Real Talk, Robert Simmons and Doctor. Maybe they changed their mind. We'll go to the next caller. <laughs> okay, caller, you are on the air. Hi, I had a question for the doctor. Okay, Dr. Luke. Yes. Okay, I was trying to figure out that how they were getting pneumonia patients confused, I mean, or COVID-19 confused with pneumonia patients. And how can you tell pneumonia from COVID-19? Because I know they said it was a lot of cases where people had been misdiagnosed from pneumonia, and it was not that. Okay, that's a good question. So when a patient presents to the hospital, there's something called triage. And so triage is looking at how sick is the patient, how soon do we need to intervene. So you could have one patient present with, let's say, fever and cough and fatigue, and another patient present with fever, and then they're coughing up blood, and they're tired. And so in many cases, when we triage a patient, we start treating based on what's called a presumptive diagnosis. So like as the, as the tests are coming back, so we're ordering chest x-rays, we're ordering blood tests to see if there's mm-hmm. an infection that's spread to the blood. And while we're waiting for all these tests to come back, we're making something called a presumptive diagnosis. So we're presuming based on a patient's risk of what their diagnosis is. If this was a very, you know, an overall fairly isolated person and they haven't been around someone who is known to be exposed to COVID-19, they may be given a presumptive diagnosis of pneumonia. If the patient had recently been around someone that had traveled to China, or somebody that was known to test positive, then they may get a presumptive diagnosis of COVID-19. Either way, both patients may be tested the same, but once the actual results come back, then you can have what's called a definitive diagnosis, and then that's based on the testing. So a, a follow-up question. So when you do the the chest x-rays and you see the, the box, you can see the pneumonia on the, on the lungs, can the X-ray for pneumonia be misdiagnosed, or can an X-ray showing COVID-19 be misdiagnosed as pneumonia just by looking at the X-ray? So one thing to keep in mind: so when we talk about viral pneumonias, right, we have to keep in mind that you know just based off the X-ray, we don't know which virus is causing that. We don't know if that's a bacterial pneumonia. You know, is it a non-infectious cause of pneumonia? Because pneumonia itself is just kind of a fluid built up in the lungs. And what the patient experiences as it gets more severe is more it's like a drowning sensation, kind of starving for air. So mm-hmm. just on that test alone, that's not something that would tell you. With the virus being so new, there's been some emergency tests that have been, have been approved by the Food and Drug Administration. And so those tests include, you know, Anything from testing the um, genetic material, so those are RNA tests. There's tests mm-hmm. now that's coming out where you basically do a blood test. 
And as the tests come out and as we improve the specificness, the specificity of the test, the accuracy of the test, then we can start making diagnosis even faster and faster. And so the fastest diagnosis and most accurate, well, I should say the most accurate diagnosis is going to be based off of the genetic material. Say, okay, you know, based on this genetic material, this is a COVID-19 virus. Based on this genetic material, this is the influenza virus. That's generally going to be the most accurate test. Okay. But it so just basically, takes time to if it's reduce the, huh? I was going to say it just takes so, time to develop more accurate tests to where you can get those mm-hmm. results faster. Right. So uh-huh. basically, if you have viral pneumonia, that means there is some underlying virus that you have come into contact with that's caused you to have viral pneumonia. If you have bacteria pneumonia, how exactly is bacteria pneumonia caused? So, um, you know, when we look at viruses versus bacteria, so bacteria, that that will respond to antibiotics. And there's also a situation where a patient may have both. They may have a viral Pneumonia, maybe that started out, the virus suppressed their immune system, and on top of the viral pneumonia, then they have a bacteria pneumonia. And that's where you'll see sometimes patients being treated concurrently for a viral and a bacteria pneumonia. Wow. Well, thank you very much uh, for your call. Yeah, well, well that, uh, this is education uh, for me <clears throat> because, you know, you, you hear news reports where you um, – Physicians, you, you heard people saying, oh, the doctors are getting confused. If it's not, it may be corona or it may be pneumonia or the symptoms and yada, yada, yada. So it helps to hear um, someone actually break it down on medical terms on the difference between viral, bacterial um, infections when it, when it comes to, to pneumonia. I have a few uh, uh, Facebook questions. Um, this one's from uh, Sharon Ray. So as a doctor... Do you advise people who work in an office setting to wear masks and gloves, or is the risk of cross-contamination too great? Okay, so, you know, one thing about to think about with face coverings is that, you know, the most protective thing to do is avoid proximity. If you have to be very close to someone, you want to make sure that they're not coughing or sneezing. So you'll probably see most offices, as our office does, will call the patients. Again, most patients right now are being seen by telehealth or telemedicine, but if they're coming into the office, we'll call and screen them, make sure that they're not coughing or sneezing. And, again, when we talk about relating to that last question, which is very good, presumptive diagnosis, you know, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to presume that the patient has some type of infectious cough, you're going to want them to be away from anyone. Keep in mind, cough can be caused by asthma. Cough can be caused by allergies. Cough can be a side effect of medication. So with a a new onset of cough, in a patient that doesn't fit those criteria of asthma, they're not on any medications that will cause that side effect, and you're presuming that it's a cough due to an infection, you want to keep that person isolated. Face coverings may offer some protection, but... I don't want someone to get, and we as healthcare providers don't want someone to get a false sense of security where they have a face covering and then they touch a surface that was infected by the virus or they're around someone 
that's known to be affected, and they have, and they think, well, I have a face mask, I'm protected. It's not necessarily the case. The right. there is a type of mask called the N95 mask that is protective for respiratory droplets. Protects the person wearing the mask and protects the person, you know, across from you that that um, doesn't have the mask on. Ideally, that mask will go through something called a fit testing. So the mask will be put on you, and an aerosol or something with a scent will be sprayed outside of the mask. And if you cannot smell it, that tells us that the mask is properly fitted. If you do smell something outside of the mask, then it's not fully properly fitted. So that's the ideal best use of it in 95 mask is where it's fit tested. One thing we don't want to run to with face masks is where the people at the most risk don't have access to the face mask. So the, the healthcare providers that are treating the critically ill COVID-infected patients where they don't have access to those face masks, that's what we don't want to run into. Yeah, so that's what we're trying to avoid. Why, so why don't we recommend face masks for everybody? Number one, they're not fully protective because you can still get it on your hands or touch a surface with it. And then the other thing, we don't want shortages for the people that's at most risk to have masks, to not have access to the mask. Wow. And 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 uh, follow-up question with that, it is allergy season. Um, a lot of pollen is falling right now, and um, everyone on pins and needles. Uh, and you hear this a lot, you know, the stuffy nose, runny nose, eyes, headaches from sinuses. Um, and I, you get, I get this a lot. So, what, what would be your advice or your recommendation to comfort the patients that are super, super concerned because of this pandemic and it being uh, allergy season simultaneous to it? Yeah. So, again, like anything else, always call and check with your specialist, your physician. There's an excellent ENT physician, Dr. Charles Green, who I want to give a shout out to. Our part of the country, we're at very high risk for having people with allergies. Actually, this is one of the number one areas of the country to be affected by allergens, especially certain times of the year. In general, people that have the yearly cycle of mild symptoms without fever, without cough, without fatigue, without feeling like you're run down, without having sputum or muscle pain, that is most likely to be your general seasonal allergies, if they're not any worse than they usually are at the same time of the year. However, in, mm-hmm. the, in the context of timing, if it's happening at a different part of the year where that it doesn't usually happen for you, that could be something else. It could, it could even be a new allergy for, on your immune system. It could be a COVID virus. It could be a different virus. It could be what's called a rhinovirus, a very common virus that also causes a common cold. But then keep in mind that COVID-19 could also present in an asymptomatic patient. So the patient may not have any symptom at, symptoms at all, or it can present in a pre-symptomatic patient. So the person has COVID, it takes time for the symptoms to develop, often 2 to 14 days, and then they're shedding the virus. So that's where, again, you want to stratify risk and look at exposures and do our due diligence right now to follow the guidelines for the rest of the month of April. And then we'll reassess. If the cases are declining, then we'll probably loosen up some of the regulations on the social distancing. 
But if hospitals are still being overwhelmed with cases, then we'll probably have that period extended and have a longer period of social distancing. So it just all depends on how things are trending in the next few weeks. Okay, so I have I have two more questions, and I'm done with questions. Um, and I'll go back to the phone real quick before we close out. And it goes to this. Um, the governor, DeSantis, he, he mentioned something last week that he believed that the coronavirus could have been in Florida as early as February. Um, now, me and a, I, I came from New York um, around February, uh, in part of January, February. And a, a few of uh, me and my friends, we got really, really sick. By this time, none of us was really paying attention to the, the, the coronavirus. But, I mean, we're talking um, fever, shortness of breath, um, headache, really, really strong, like heart headache. And when you went to the hospitals, um, they, your test came back negative, you, you know. But, but it wasn't really flu-like symptoms, but you knew – the doctor was telling you nothing was wrong, but you knew you, you were sick. And, I, you know, I, I was sick for about, I mean, I was really sick for maybe seven days, like in the bed, shortness of breath. And, and, and it was a group of us, and we all had the same symptoms. What are the chances that we actually had COVID-19 in February? And if so, have our bodies produced antibodies for the virus until it mutates? So, you know, the only way to know for sure is is to do a, a test. So, you know, we can't have a presumptive or just a clinical diagnosis based on a present, presentation of symptoms. Then you can test right. for it. Well, you know, if, let's say, you had those symptoms and they improved, then your immune system at this point would have the antibodies to it. And so that's the test that you would do is test for the antibodies because now your, your body has fought the virus you made the proteins that killed the virus, and so those proteins are present in your bloodstream, and so you would test the blood. Okay, good. If so that, that leads it's to- early on, yeah, if, if it's early on in, in the stages, and let's say, let's say someone, you know, they just travel, they've been back, you know, two to three days, and now they start to have those symptoms that I mentioned, the fever, cough, the fatigue. At that point, as nasal swab can be taken to test for the virus because the virus is at its peak when symptoms start to begin. And so that's when you'll have the highest concentration in your, in your nasal cavity and what's called your oral pharynx. And a swab will tell you, you know, do you have it at that point? So it just really depends on where you, what stage you catch it at. What we're most concerned about is not the patients, Robert, in your demographic, but those patients that are 60 and older with heart disease, lung disease, kidney problems, with diabetes. Those are the patients that may go through the three different stages. So you have the early infectious stage. That's where you're first starting to develop the symptoms. Then you mm-hmm. have the pulmonary phase where, you, where patients can have oxygen requirements. They may need some supplemental support. Then they have a hyperinflammatory phase, and that's basically where there's so much inflammation in the lungs that the patient is hard to ventilate even on the ventilator. So that's what, that's what we need to be most concerned about is that population that goes through those three phases. Wow. And I guess my, my, my last final question, um, 
what do you feel about the herd theory? Basically, you know, no one practice social distance. Um, we just kind of walk around and our bodies will just kind of like how I was with, let's say, if I had it, it fought off and it, where the, basically we just get immune to it. And I heard the um, Prime Minister of, of Great Britain, I, I guess he kind of wanted to go in that direction until he got sick with it. Um, is, is that a theory that should be looked at, or are we doing what's right by isolation? Okay. So let's just say what herd immunity is really quick. So herd immunity is where a lot of people have been infected by an agent, in this case COVID-19, and so as they've been infected and they build up immunity, now there's so many people immune that they don't pass the disease among other patients that have been asymptomatic. If hospital systems, you know, weren't being overwhelmed, that might be an, you know, that might be something that could be an option. However, you know, when hospital systems, you know, you look at, we don't want to fall into the situation that Italy fell into. We don't want to be under the situation that New York and L.A., are under. When they're overwhelmed, you know, then, you know, it's a problem that's really too big to be handled, and you're making the situation much worse by not following the social distancing and keeping the six feet, keeping six feet from other people. And so, herd immunity is something that, you know, it will develop over time. However, by not following social distancing now, we're just going to make things worse. Got you. Well, uh, thank you very, very much for coming on the show tonight. Um, is there anything you would like to let the audience know, any new projects, big engagements, or anything you have going on at the clinic, uh, you can go ahead and let them know. I don't want to hold you. I know you got uh, important things to do. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, you know, we're trying to do some, you know, great things in terms of education. We're still continuing, you know, our stronghold on the medical cannabis industry. We're going to have more events with FAMU. You can check us out on our webpage, acuteinjuryrelief.com, and we'll have more information that will be posted on the prevention of the coronavirus, on the different ways to manage it, and also even some of the newer things that's coming out, like the convalescent serum, you know, the need for early treatment. We'll have various links that will be coming out week after week, and we'll try to improve on our ability to help the community deal with what's going on with the pandemic. So I'd like to do a follow-up with you, Robert, if we could, in the next couple of weeks to you know, provide another okay. update to follow up on any other questions that have been out there among your audience. And I also wanted to thank you for what I feel is a public service announcement, to get the information out there to protect the public I think it's a wonderful thing that you're doing to, you know, help the community of Jacksonville and Florida and really the world because people are starting to listen in all over on your talk show. I really appreciate you. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. It feels good to know that people hear you. So, yeah, we're going to definitely uh, do a follow-up. I want to thank everyone that tuned in on iTunes, Facebook Live, via the website, Blog Talk, or via telephone. Remember, um, we will be hearing a lot more from Dr. Newton in the future. Hopefully next time, uh, once we get the software set up, we'll be able to do this via video and telephone line. So we got the technology in process. We're just getting that out uh, now. So I uh, thank you very much, Doc, and I appreciate you for coming on. All right. Thank you, Robert, and thanks to all the wonderful listeners out there. I really appreciate all of you. Keep with the social distancing. 
hand washing. We've been doing a great job. We'll just keep this up a few more weeks. And I'm really proud of all the other healthcare providers. And again, thank you, everyone. Wishing you a wonderful April 7th World Health Day. Thank you very much. And uh, before, you know, going to close in, uh, I'd like to give a shout out on World Health Day to all those people, all the nurses, uh, doctors, the CNAs, the MAs, um, everyone that has anything to do in uh, in that field. Also to the essential workers. Like, I mean, everyone for y'all, I mean, the people that stock in the shelves, that that's passing me food. I was able to order a whole fish yesterday, and it was like, I appreciate y'all because some of us, we don't know how to cultivate, grow food or farm, nothing like that. So we appreciate you guys taking the risk, and uh, big shout-out to you guys for keeping the world uh, economy going. And um, we're going to see if we can, we can lobby them to give y'all some. We need to be hitting our state and state senators and our congressional leaders and saying, since these guys are essential workers, they need to get essential pay. But that's going to be a whole other topic for another day. I want to thank you guys for tuning in to Real Talk with Robert Simmons. Make sure to tune in next Tuesday. Uh, we'll have we'll release what the topic is later in the week. So God bless you. God keep you. Talk with Mr. Robert Brown. The real talk, the real talk with Mr. Robert Brown. The real talk, the real talk with Mr. Robert Brown. The real talk, the real talk with Mr. Robert Brown. The real talk, the real talk with Mr. Robert Brown.